Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I'm fascinated by my next-door neighbor. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. Since I moved to this particular part of London a couple of years ago, Neil and I have started to become good friends as our polite greetings over the fence turned into barbecues and the occasional drink at the pub. But with unfettered access to someone with a job that is so far removed from my own, I'm desperate to find out more about his industry, one that is quite literally a matter of life and death. In The Doctor Next Door, I'll be doing my utmost to learn all about Neil as a medical professional, but also Neil as a person, because believe it or not, even doctors have lives outside of the operating theatre. But this podcast isn't just here to feed my own curiosities. Oh no, I want you to be involved in these conversations too. So whether you live next door to a doctor, perhaps you are a doctor, or you want to use my access to a doctor to your own advantage, send your questions, thoughts and stories to doctor at nextdoorpod.com right now. That must be the doctor next door. Come on in. Hi, Neil. Hello, David. Good to see you again. Great to see you. Um, the neighbourhood is a buzz um, because someone has attached um, a laminated flyer to a lamppost. Now, what we love about this here is that it's a, a festival of Baroque music featuring Bach's Brandenburg concertos. But what we love about it most is a little bit of wordplay, just to bring a wry smile to, to the neighbourhood's faces. Um, they're calling it Bark for Good. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring out to everyone's attention and... If I may, just a round of applause for the wordplay because I don't think many people have been brave enough to bring together a, a long dead German composer and Gary Barlow before yes. and advertise it on a lamppost. So well done and good luck to everybody involved in Bark for Good. Indeed, yeah, as a big uh, Take That fan, that was the first thing that, that caught my eye. I thought, I want to be there. I Gary's coming too. Uh, we will be duetting later in the uh, series, just so you know. Um, now, Neil. Let's get down to business, shall we? And this is based on uh, an event that happened just about two hours ago when I was returning home. Uh, you were heading out. We didn't really even have time for pleasantries because you were in the middle of your life or death business um, as a doctor. Tell us, tell everybody what you were doing because you were on the phone and you were doing consultations with people on the phone. Then you were going to go and see some people in the actual flesh how does that balance out? So, uh, good point, David. I just, I didn't realise that you're probably just finishing your, your day job, actually. I yeah. thought you were just going to the shops. Yeah. It goes to show how different our lives are. There you go. Um, uh, I was, uh, sometimes now with COVID, we have the ability to see patients via telephone. 
Um, it's hugely beneficial. I think it works really well. It's very efficient because patients don't have to travel a long way, find parking. It's good for the environment in that sense. And you can almost fit it in with your regular routine day. But one of my patients unfortunately forgot that it was their appointment. And so when I rang, I said, oh, I'm in the middle of a busy business meeting. Can you ring me back in half an hour? So I said, yes, of course. And then realized that I actually had to go and see some people in the flesh afterwards and needed to get a move on. So I was a bit late for that. So that's why you saw me running past right. you and going, good morning, David. How are you? I presume this must be some kind of private practice because you can't just tell a man like yourself that I'm busy on a business call. Can we talk about cardiology in 30 minutes time? No, no. It happens in the NHS all the time. I mean, that's Does the whole really? point of um, my sort of idea of, of doing things remotely is that actually... My clinics go really rapidly if, I, if the patients aren't waiting in a busy waiting room, being processed by several stages in the busy waiting room, and they're not late because they can't find hospital parking and so on and so forth. So because of that, I'm pretty flexible. And quite often I'll call them early and say, actually, I'm ahead of my clinic. Do you mind having a chat now? If not, no worries, I'll call you back later. But sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes I call them and they're busy. And I think, okay, no problem. Actually, I've got another half an hour. I'll do something else and I'll come back to you. No problem. Wow, that's, that's the calm and collected kind of mentality you need to have, I suppose, yeah, in your yeah. line of And work. I think we need to be flexible now. We need to be more flexible yeah. in how we work. Yeah. The days of, you know, waiting to be seen by the doctor should change, in my opinion. You should change. And you're at the forefront of that. Exactly. So... Why I thought it was interesting that we kind of dashed past each other and I knew that we would be seeing each other like for this now is I wonder how how your morning had gone would affect how you were going to be on the podcast today. And that led me into a kind of a deeper wormhole about coping mechanisms for not only yourself, Neil, but also for your contemporaries and peers and, and people who are at the literally at the sharp end of the scalpel. Is there a, you can have a traumatic experience in the morning, you can see things that people don't really want to see. How do you turn that round before you kind of try and become a normal person again, or see another patient later on in the day or see your family in the evening? Okay. How do you cope? So, so you mean if I have a funny experience for example or a bad experience or something goes wrong or something's traumatic yeah how do I put it out my I mean, mind yeah, exactly because it's yeah. it's coping with these things exactly. and it's your day-to-day -day so, life so I don't know how it evolved because you're absolutely right I remember being a younger doctor and you'd go home and you'd meet your friends in the pub or something in a weekend and you, you you know life is completely different to actually what you're experiencing in your work and you kind of detach and just I tend not to talk too much about work, actually, when I'm away from work. But I think Until I got you to do this podcast. And you're like, joking, are you, Dave? Come now, on, man. <laughs> now, now you're my psychiatrist. <laughs> but actually, I think what happens over time is you develop some coping mechanisms. You, you become numb to some extent. You end up having experiences of certain things again and again and again. Certain things where you see sad things in people's lives we see you know the end of people's lives sometimes sometimes where you have to give really distressing news to people and I suppose that's you know as a younger doctor sometimes that would affect you a bit more but as you get more experienced in it you realize actually you're more used to your patience if you can be strong as a person you can be professional as a person and actually that you can deliver that news or deliver whatever is happening or do whatever is needed in a professional manner that people will respect and remember. They'll thank that doctor who said, you know, I'm really sorry, but, you know, you're going to lose your wife or you're going to lose your husband or something like that. And if you do that well, 
They will always remember that and it will always be part of that bereavement process and part of that learning to cope with loss. So I see it as my moral duty to try and hold yourself together and then try and deliver that in the appropriate way for people so that their lives can be, you know, as good as we can make it in terms of, you know, the experience in terms of that process. So part of coping is is to reflect on what may have happened and yeah. asking yourself, did I handle that with the kind of tact yeah. and care that, that the situation deserved? And yeah. th that, that's, that's step one for you. That's, that's step one. Now, when I go away from that situation, once I've, you know, delivered that part of my job, my role, then I think what I end up doing is completely detaching. So I don't even really tend to think about what's happened. And I certainly don't bring that back to my home life. I like to then, actually for me, it's therapeutic to sort of actually switch off completely. I come home, hello kids, hello wife, hello life, and it's completely different. You've got and to learn their names at some point, yes, you, know, exactly. you can't just be coming home What's saying that every day. Hi, I, I still go with boy. <laughs> I mean, I know there's girl. a lot of medical, <laughs> medical knowledge up there, but try and cram in some room just for your family's names, you know, it's, it's important. Yeah. I, I have, I, obviously, part of this podcast is how different our lives are. And the only kind of thing that I would, and I'm not going to use the word equate, but kind of close to is if, if there's a big like live TV show that, that I'm doing, I always used to try and think beyond it. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would be prepared as I possibly could be for the big show. But a big part of my coping mechanism with just not standing there and like freezing and dying a death on stage, um, metaphorically speaking, was just to think that ah oh, on on Friday I'm going to be seeing that friend of mine and we're going to be going for lunch okay. or um, ah tomorrow night my wife and I we're going to be going for dinner and I would have that as a little kind of focus almost like the light at the end of the working tunnel yeah so I mean but that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't apply to me no no, no I find it's I always uh, we went we talked about it the other day it's a, it's a lot like professional sports people when they are you know planning for a Champions League game or whatever it is. Mm. It's about that zone, mm. being in that zone, being in, within yourself and focusing on your role and what you have to deliver within that role. Mm. Once I've delivered that, my way to shut off and relax is not to think about that anymore because I've spent, expended a lot of energy yeah. thinking about that. I expended a lot of emotional energy going through that experience. Yeah. What I want to do actually is just go home and go, that didn't happen. Yeah, no, this is my life now. It's so interesting. So I suppose. It's the opposite. Yeah. Well, I suppose what I, you know personally, what I've got to take from that is that I don't ever really like being fully in the zone, which is probably why I've never won the Champions League, Neil. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I like to think of the world beyond the zone, I so I can be comfortable and do what I need to do in the zone. But I'm aware that the zone isn't the be all and end all of my existence. Yeah. But then again, that's why I'm handling a microphone and you're handling a scalpel. That's, yeah, I that's probably that one of the key. It's kind of different mechanisms, and there may be other surgeons who that's the way they think about things or that's the way they cope but for me it's literally switch on in the tunnel you need to be focused and doing what you're doing that's your performance that's your role once that is finished no matter how traumatic that is you know you've lost the champions league or whatever it is it's you know end of season for me basically in my mind i'm out of here i forget about it unless I need to be dealing with something. And actually, you know, you talked about coping mechanisms. One of the biggest coping mechanisms for me is escapism. So you just go away and you listen to music or you go away and you go on a holiday to Greece or something. You sit on a remote island, you look at the sea, you watch the world go by, you watch the stars and you forget that that was your life mm. for one week or two weeks. And for me, that's one of the most 
therapeutic experiences of the year when I go on our yearly family holiday. And I think actually, this is my life. This is what life is about. This is mm. about, you know, eating, getting up, watching the stars, mm. watching the, the, the seasons, the mm. waves, the weather, mm. watching my kids grow up, spending time with my kids. That is my life. And then I've completely forgotten that I've done anything else. I'll stop checking emails after about day five. And, um, and uh, you know, I'll be completely unwound and I'll come back and go, why do I do this again? And then after about three days, I'm back in the buzz of it and backed into focusing. So you mentioned going to an island there and listening to music. I, I might just write this down as another it's format a, idea. So uh, some really on desert podcast, island right? going through music choices on a desert. That's a nice mm. idea. Neil, we're going to get into the kind of big, meaty, beefy question in a bit. But first, um, I wanted to, to, to ask your, I suppose, I mean, this is a throwaway question, but one I'm fascinated to know the answer to, and I'm sure everyone subscribing to this will feel the same. I went to the opticians this week. Now, I didn't know that I was short-sighted until I was 24, and I found out I was short-sighted. Talk about anxiety dreams when I did my first TV show that involved an autocue. Oh, right. Because in my infancy as a TV presenter, I refused to use an autocue because the reacting speaking part of my brain was slightly more fleet of foot than the reading aloud part of I my see. brain. Yeah. But then I had the great honour of taking over um, as an interim manager on the uh, TV institution that was CD UK. Okay. So it was Anton Deck, and then Kat Dealey did it, and Kat Dealey left and I took over and that was an auto cue show and it wasn't until I arrived on set and I kept asking them just to bring it a bit closer a bit closer <laughs> <It was laughs> horrified for the viewers just this big yeah. round face on the tv screen introducing a new one by Kanye West um but anyway that was when I realized I was short-sighted and since then since I've been at 24 you know I wear spectacles I wear contact lenses I mix it up a little bit I went to the optician and she was talking to me about floaters yeah now why do we get floaters in our eyes, Neil? So uh, all of us get floaters from time to time. There are little bits of protein material within the jelly, uh, within the eye itself. So the eye has a lens on the outside. The lens is very complex. It uses a load of muscles to change how much light we get in, but also change how we focus. So it's a really clever system. Um, the light then is, goes through, basically the ball has a load of liquid jelly. And it goes through that and hits the back of the eye where it's processed by some nerves and the brain then creates a picture for you. Within that whole structure of that jelly, you can imagine you're born with that your whole life. If you have a bag of jelly or something over time, you know, a water balloon or something, it will get bits of gunk in it. The same thing happens in the eye. The Latin term for that is called massi volitantes. Um, and uh, that is uh, basically means you've got flying flies. And right. I think all of us have them. If you look on certain days in the sunlight or you look up, you'll notice that they float and you see them refracted in the light. So what you're seeing is the light catching those bits of the protein and then hitting the back of the eye where the, where the retina is and things are processed and you're seeing sort of shadows across there. Um, I had a similar experience to you in that... Um, uh, when I was younger, I was an aspiring want-to-be cricketer. So I played for the doctor's cricket team in Leeds when I was a Naturally. And um, I was trying to bat one day thinking, you know, I'm the next Sachin Tendulkar, here I am. And this thing <laughs> came across my eye, this floater thing. 
And uh, luckily, the opposite side batsman who was with me, you know, the, the guy on the other end, he was with me in, on our team. He was a big, optim- famous ophthalmologist where I worked. And I said to him, you know, I've got these things in my eyes. He said, yeah, yeah, they're these uh, floaters. They're very common. So I can't bat. I can't use these. Um, I can't, you know, you need to do something to get rid of it. And he said, yeah, it is possible to get rid of them. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll come to your clinic on Monday. He said, what we've got to do is got to put a needle inside the eyeball, drain all the vitreous oh. and put a new type of liquid oh, in. no. At which point I said, no, thanks. <laughs> I think I'll just give up the I cricket. I think I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll cope, I'll cope. Exactly. Um, well, thank you for answering that. Mm. Eye floaters. Everyone gets them. Not too much of a concern. No one wants to have a needle in the eye. So live with them. I just, I'm, you can never really focus on them as well, though. I mean, yeah, you, you can't I'm, because I'm, they, I'm, they, they like float a, with your eye seat. Yeah. It's like a seat. Yeah. So the, the, there's water there, and they float with the movement. Then they're different to the movement of your eye and you because there's, yeah. there's a bouncing of that, and you can't control. I reported them once as a UFO sighting. <laughs> I felt ridiculous. <laughs> Now, Neil, a regular feature here on Doctor Next Door is my medical training, something we know from your correspondents out there that you love playing along with. Now, last week, I got 100%. It's given me such confidence that I've started to view properties on Harley Street. (laughs) (laughs) You've got three questions. We know you love playing along where you are right now. What have you got for us for my medical training this week? So, David, you did really well uh, last week, and it makes me wonder whether I'm making medical school too easy for you. (laughs) So um, this week we've got a a set of three questions, and uh, we'll start with the first question. What does the uh, acronym NICU stand for? The acronym NICU. It's the first question. Okay. Okay. Your second question, which is, you know, I'll give you, you can be, a, uh, you can do my job if you get this one right. You can be um, a cardiologist. When was the first successful human to human heart transplant carried out? Oh, that's a nice question. And that's not, that's for, nice for everyone to know. That's good, it's good pub ammunition, that exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah, and for okay. bonus marks, if you can tell us the uh, absolute hero who did it, that would be the amazing. name of the cardiologist. Absolutely. Bonus marks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Writes down geography teacher's name. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then obviously our last question is uh, related to, is it a medical term or not? So we're asking, is it made up or is it a real medical term? And uh, our term this week is polydipsia. That's polydipsia. Okay. I'm going to ponder those. I suggest you do the same. We will get the answers to my medical training coming up right after this. Here's another podcast made by our lovely producers that we think you may enjoy. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Doctor Next Door. Before the break, Dr. Neil asked me three questions so I can continue my medical training. It is now time to reveal the answers. Neil, do you want to take us through the questions again? So yeah, our first question, David, was um, what does the acronym NICU stand for? Uh, I've put no, I can't understand. Okay, David. <laughs> we'll definitely not give you a rotation on the uh, neonatal intensive care unit then. Okay, no points for that one. Okay, still yeah. got two left. Yeah, what have we got? got? Two left. So, this is quite a tough one, actually. When was the first successful human-to-human heart transplant uh, carried out? And bonus marks was, if you can tell us who. Right, well, just to get the bonus points bit out of the way, I've just gone for Paul Weller. Okay. Because he's coming on the show in a couple of weeks' time. And I, he's just, but I know it's not, it wasn't the Mod Father, he didn't do it. No, did he? the no, Mod Father, no. sadly not. Um, brilliant album in Stanley Road. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, not a, a brilliant heart transplant stage. Um, I'm going to go for, and the key word here is successful. Mm. So people would have been stabbing away at this for probably 100 years, right? But I'm going to go for 1962. Very good, David. Not bad at all. 1967, unfortunately, though. So the first successful human-to-human transplant in the world was carried out actually in South Africa. It was an amazing surgeon called Christian Barnard. He was a pioneer and often thought of as a bit of a renegade. Often you'll find that these huge steps in medicine are sometimes criticised by the establishment. People think, okay, this guy's a bit of a sort of maverick. What is he doing? Or, or she. Um, and Christian Barnard basically um, had a patient called Louis uh, Washkansky. He was a 54-year-old grocer, and the poor chap was suffering from diabetes. He had incurable heart disease. And so with the assistance of his um, brother, uh, Marius, and as well a, a, a team of about 30 staff, he went on and performed this operation, lasted about five hours, and saved this gentleman's life. Uh, Washkansky survived the operation. He unfortunately only lived for 18 days, succumbing to pneumonia as he was taking uh, immunosuppressive drugs. 
but it was the first example of this. And now we have, you know, you know, heart transplant across the country. How many do? How many heart transplants across the country are there? So unfortunately, I would say we don't do enough. There's okay. a reasons in terms of transplant surgery in general. We know that there's not enough donors. I used to work in 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 liver transplant in Leeds in the firm involving that and kidney transplant. It takes a special sort of person to do that kind of specialty. The operations are long and you have to be really um, available all the time. Um, we perform about 161 heart transplants in the country per year. And part of that is the sort of selection of patients. Part of that is the donors. One of the things, you know, that really inspires me about transplant surgeons is, for example, when I worked with the liver firm and with the team that did kidney transplants, it's just their dedication. So it's like you and I, and I say, I'll take Tuesday, you take Wednesday. And we have to be available, whatever happens, doesn't matter about wow. family, about our life or anything. If you go on holiday for two weeks, it's me one on one. It's that wow. kind of dedication. You have to be in the zone. Yeah. What's so I've got that one wrong, but only by what yeah, was I? I think we like give you half three a point. Years. You got the 60s. I mean, that's pretty yeah. good. I'll take half a point. I'm yeah. not too proud to in do Cape that. Town. In fact, you could say that I'm polydipic about it. Um, <laughs> Which dates us very nicely <laughs> try, to, was it? <laughs> to uh, polydipsia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a medical term or not? It's, that, uh, it's, it's I, just true or false. So I, it's, I don't. 50 50 chance uh, here. Poly is, is many, isn't it? And I, uh, I'm going to say it's not a medical term. I can't even hazard a guess as to what it is. Oh. It is a medical term. Of though. course it is, so, Neil. I yes. was about, let me finish. That's what you thought I was going to say. Okay. But no, I, I didn't know. Okay. okay. It's, it's half a point this week. What <laughs> is, poly di what is polydipsia? Polydipsia is when you have this constant excessive drinking, like me right now, um, when you're constantly thirsty. So poly is many and dipsia is the drinking bit. Oh, I should have got the drinking And, um, uh, you know, some people have that polydipsia because they sort of have this sort of habit or tick and that can be actually harmful for you can actually sort of wipe out some of the gradients in your kidneys and and make you quite sick if you drink too much water but also another you know common cause is things like diabetes so having too much blood sugar and and, and starting to become unwell with diabetes can make people want to drink a lot this medical training was supposed to be fun neil <laughs> <laughs> it was never fun <laughs> You've not I, been through I, it, Barry. I, I, uh, I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. Presenting, uh, presenting live TV was more fun than yeah, well, my medical yeah, school. Yeah. Um, so I got half a point this week. Uh, there will be more of my medical training along in the next episode of Doctor Next Door. I hope you fared better out there than I did this week. Right, now, Neil, in each episode of the pod, I'm going to ask you a burning medical question. Some are outrageous, some could possibly be mundane, but I want to delve deep. And this week, what I'd like to ask you is, based on me getting up to do a breakfast show in the morning, which I never complain about, I am very much a morning person, but I do know how important it is to get to bed early the night before. Sometimes, of course, the most interesting things in anyone's life are happening in the evening. And we all hear about the eight hours and I must admit, I don't always get them. So my question to you is this, doctor, is there a secret fix to a good night's sleep? Great question, Dave. I always wonder about your lifestyle because we're polar opposites. You're clearly someone who's got the ability to wake up in the morning and turn it on and do it, you know, do your job. 
And uh, that must come from maybe some of that's genetic. You know, we know that some people are better in the mornings and some people are better in the evenings. I, for one, have done some of my best work. In fact, I've got a PhD in um, rapid abnormal heart rhythms. And uh, most of that is written between, said, a 10 and 4 in the morning, 10 in the night and 4 in the morning, while my child was a baby and sleeping. And I would watch him, occasionally feed him and change a nappy, but spend the rest of the time writing that. So we're completely opposite people. In the morning, I can't function. So that's the first bit. In terms of, you know, sleep itself, do we all really need eight hours sleep? The simple answer is there's no magic, magic number. It's whatever is right for your body and about being able to gauge how tired you feel the next day and gauge your body clock. Some people could get away with, you know, less than that. Some people can get away with even, you know, really small amounts, four hours and so on. But in general, it's felt that people who sleep less than six hours a day, it's probably not ideal for you. Sleeping less than six hours a day probably increases your risk of strokes, increases your risk of heart disease. And it also, the reason probably is that you're more stressed, there's more adrenaline in the system, more of that fight and flight response with all the negative hormones that are released as part of that, increasing your heart rate, increasing your blood pressure that is harmful for you. Interestingly, recently there was a very interesting study published by the UK Biobank. So UK Biobank is a fantastic thing where they've basically got genetics and a whole load of data about people and they match that together. They got 88,000 volunteers and they found the optimal time to go to bed was around 10 to 11 p.m. And we think that that's linked to your body's natural circadian clock, so the 24-hour clock of your body. And we think that by syncing that clock to your sleep, it perhaps helps in terms of your cardiovascular disease. So uh, about 3,000 people within that study develop cardiovascular disease. Um, but those who are sleeping either earlier or later than 10, 10 to 11 in that window, were the ones that tended to be at risk compared to those that slept in that 10 to 11 window, which is interesting. So obviously this is having, from a, a physical uh, perspective, this would affect people who who work shifts yeah you know and obviously that's a great deal of people not only in the uk but around the world absolutely and and there are an increasing number of people who work shifts just because of the way in which the world is moving from a business point of view absolutely i mean i always used to i'm very grateful now that i've got a bit older and become a consultant and the shifts the night shifts are less uh, sort of onerous but i remember being a junior doctor particularly in my first sort of august of 2000 and whenever it was when I did my first set of nights. In those days, we do seven nights in a row, 12 hours. And you just have to become a night owl. You'd sleep all day or try to sleep all day. But my sleep was dreadful in the day because you're exposed to light. You wake up all the time. You're sweaty. You're hungry at the wrong times. And then you have to be awake between the hours of eight and eight in the morning, which is, you know, just very unnatural and not natural for your body. And we know that people who are, you know, lorry drivers, those kind of things who have to do those kind of shifts, they have a much shortened life expectancy. They die 10 years, maybe more, younger Goodness. than they should do. And we know that, therefore, that, that kind of pattern of sleeping is clearly harmful to you. Is there a, an optimum time, Not if this is an emergency, obviously, because that can't be helped, unfortunately, but is there an optimum time that surgeons like to do an operation? So I think that, again, it varies by the individual. We've talked okay. about this genetic aspect. So if I was a surgeon and you were one of my patients, like, come on, it's 5 a.m., yes. get in and out. You'd be that surgeon. <laughs> and actually, the majority of surgeons I know are those kind of people. 5 a.m. Okay. ward round, I'd like to operate at 5. I'm the opposite, and I'm sort of 
warm up by about 10. So I liked, you know, to, to kick off around 9, 10 o'clock or something at the earliest. And probably, as you say, my best work is somewhere in the middle. Um, not that it's particularly different. It's just that I'm more awake at those kind of times in the day. And I think it, despite that, you know, I did say, oh, you know, I did my PhD in the middle of the night. I don't actually enjoy operating in the middle of the night. And I think that's partly because we've changed our body clocks unnaturally to this kind of wake at the morning and sleep in the night and then sleep throughout the night pattern. So we, we touched natural. on, on a, a previously here on the podcast about, you know, kind of intermittent fasting when it comes to diet and how we've evolved and moved on from, from doing that. But that was a key part of what we are as, as, as homo sapiens. Do you think the same is true of sleep? Yeah, I think that sleep and the, t the kind of sleep we do now, which is everybody go to bed at, I don't know, sometime between 8, 9, 10, 11 and sleep all night and then wake up for the morning. It's clearly an industrial revolution phenomenon, right? It's something that's based on the fact that, you know, workers had to get up, the shifts were such, and lifestyles changed. If you look at research at what happened in, in the past, particularly, you know, in the medieval times and things, people did used to sleep in a sort of split way. It's not that common and not that recent that we have slept in the way that we have. So, for instance, that there is lots of data going all the way from things like Homer's Odyssey to, you know, studies in Nigerian tribes in the old days. And they all show that split sleep was quite a common thing. So in medieval England, for instance, it was very common that a couple of hours after it got dark, you'd go to sleep. You'd sleep for maybe somewhere between, you know, two or three hours. You'd then get up and there was a period of wakefulness. And um, during that period of wakefulness, you'd do a lot of things. You would, you know, do some housework, you would do some smoking, you would socialise. It was a really important period where people would walk around and talk to other people. But also it was one of the most important periods when people actually had sex. There's lots of medieval texts and things saying that that is the best time to conceive a baby because you've worked all day, you're tired, you rest, you wake up, you're, you're, you're more awake, you're eating a bit and things. And that was the time to, you know, to mate. Um, so we do you think that's where the smoking thing started was that post coital or <laughs> maybe exactly <laughs> it could well have been right after that first sleep <laughs> where it all happened um, I think we're obviously talking about this from a, a kind of the effects of it from a physical perspective and obviously there's a sleep deprivation and what the toll that that can take on someone's mental health as well the, the general consensus is that different people need different lengths of sleep but it's about the quality of sleep isn't yeah. it and do you think that's where, and again, you just did mention it now, I'm interested in the nap, the idea of the nap. If I finish my breakfast show and I'm doing something in the evening, I will try and have a nap. But there's so many factors in that because the rest of the world is still moving around, the doorbell's ringing, there's people having extensions done to their houses. Please stop having an extension done to your house! <laughs> um, so, you know, you've got to factor in all of these things. Whereas at yep. night, in general, unless you live, you know, in the middle of a party town, things are quiet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is an issue with overnapping. So certainly, you know, napping for more than two hours and things certainly does make the brain go into a very deep sleep, makes you very groggy. But if you look at, for example, you know, Latin cultures, go to Spain. And I remember my first trip to Spain a long time ago, and I had no money. 
I thought, I'll go to the bank. And I'd arrived, it was about two in the afternoon. There's nothing open. You can't do anything, Classic right? Brits abroad no, there, exactly. Neil. Brits abroad, no beer, no food. Yeah. I can't even Why get are you all going hotel. to dinner now? It's 11 p.m. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, and, and they are some of the people with some of the longest, you know, lifespans. We, we touched, touched on the Mediterranean diet. On the Mediterranean yeah. diet and mm. the fact that, you know, there's a certain villages in, in Italy and certain places where people routinely live to, uh, you know, uh, 90s, 100s, those kind of things. Things. So there is probably some benefits to having a break in the middle of the day and, and having having a nap, as you say. But it's just about gauging that and not doing it too much. If you look at in Mediterranean cultures, although they have two hour break, it's not that they sleep for those two hours. They eat. They have some time with their family. Mm. That probably has some effect in terms of de-stressing and mm. that detachment we talked about from the day's work and from yeah. life and going back to what's therapeutic, which is you know your wholesome life existence. And then, you know, maybe a 20-minute nap or a one-hour nap and then back to things. So I think what you do is very good. So effectively, um, if you're looking to achieve a good sleep pattern, go Mediterranean, have a siesta, wake up, um, have some sex with your partner. Absolutely. Probably don't smoke. Let's leave that back in the medieval yeah. times and um, you'll be good to go. And so, Neil, it's time to take a little look inside the inbox and see what we've got this week. And we have this in from Ben, who says, Hi, Dave and Neil. My daughter is obsessed with the idea of saving lives and one day becoming a surgeon herself. What advice or tips would you give to a young teenager looking to start a career in medicine and follow a path to becoming a surgeon like yourself? Well, thank you very much indeed for your email, Ben. Neil, what advice you got for the youngsters out there? So I highly encourage it as a career. As you've talked yourself, it's so rewarding. It's so diverse and you get to learn some fascinating things about the human body as you're experiencing yourself during your medical training day. <laughs> um, I think the first thing to bear in mind is to be aware that there are certain subjects that you need to study to get into medical school. So, Which are? Um, they vary by different medical schools themselves, but when I was studying, all of them required you to study chemistry. I thought it was useful to do biology, but it wasn't a prerequisite. But I did biology during my A-levels, and I also did mathematics, though you could do physics or something. So it doesn't always have to be that you study all the science subjects. There are lots of people who have done other things, English, history, whatever it is. But just make sure that you understand the entry requirements and also understand the grade requirements within that so that you're preparing when you're you know, 16, 17 and doing your A-levels, even before really, right, at the end of your GCSEs, you need to pick the correct A-levels because you don't want to be you know, at the point of going, I want to apply to medical school and find you've not mm. got the right subjects. Neil's absolutely right, by the way. Just I did theatre studies and photography and they wouldn't let me into medical school. So <laughs> you know, just pick carefully. Things have changed now, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, so then once you've gone through that process, then you need to decide if the career's for you. And bear in mind also that in interviews and things, what they're looking for is some degree of commitment to specialty or somebody who's shown some interest in finding out about it. I've interviewed for lots of medical school interviews and things, and that's part of the criteria. So you might want to do, during your sixth form time, whatever, some volunteering, for instance. I volunteered in an elderly care home, for instance, got to learn a bit more about what healthcare is involved and you know what are the lives of people who live in this environment. It's also probably worthwhile trying to get some experience in a hospital, just going around 
around the hospital and walking around and understanding, okay, this is the accident emergency department, this is where they do theatres, that kind of thing. I did a week in um, St. Thomas's many, many moons ago and I just walked around, you know, as part of my shadowing and saw different things as part of that placement and that helped, you know, make me form my decisions. Mm -hmm. So those are, I think, the two aspects. And I think I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, am I clever enough or... Any of those things, if the key really is to be committed and to be passionate about it. If you decide after all of that, that I really love human biology, I really love caring for people, and I've really enjoyed, you know, what I've done in terms of experience and seeing things, then clearly that is for you. And that's a good career choice if that suits you. Um, And then you just have to go for it and see what happens. You don't particularly need to be super bright to get through medical school itself. The key, I think, is just to set yourself up in the right way to make sure you're able to get in and then from that everything sort of tends to flow will ben's daughter and obviously all other young people looking to get into to your kind of the field of medicine are are they gonna because there's so many kind of stories surrounding the the side of of the kind of medical training that is partying and making your own liquor at medical school and all of that stuff but I would imagine the reality is you've got to be prepared to do the long hours and the hard graft. And you will find yourself maybe in a position where all of your friends who are 20 or 21 are going off to do that thing that 20, 21 year olds do. And it might not be possible for you to do it because you've got a bigger commitment on your plate at the moment to help your, your development in medicine. Yeah. So that's where that whole you know, comment about deciding if that is something that inspires you enough and makes you passionate enough to want to give up or sacrifice Mm -hmm. some of your youth to develop in a different way. A bit like, I suppose, you know, professional footballers. They go to bed early, they sacrifice drinks. Some of their peers will have gone on to go to parties and things at 18, but the ones that really make it to play Premier League football, etc., they give up a lot. Mm-hmm. in response to that and it's that kind of mindset that you need medical school itself can be a lot of fun you know there are still the one pound a drink dress up axially and and have lots of fun moments there are still the football club the whatever club and the beauty of medical school is that it's really a very big environment so there's something for everybody not everybody has to be the you know football captain type character wants to go to the pub and down 10 pints from a funnel not everybody has to be the sort of cheerleader characters or whatever is there's something for everybody there's societies for everybody there's interest in lots of different things from theater to whatever drama you name it the one thing i suppose you do have to be prepared for and you made a very good point and i think it, it reminded me because you i think you told me once upon a time about you know how you were presenting a big show and then you went to la and I and you were I think in your twenties. Just remind me, twenty two or something. What did you say? Yeah. Well, the first time I went yeah out to the states to do to do some presenting, I was about twenty one, twenty two. Yeah. yeah. And it reminded me. I thought, okay, well, you know what? That reminds me of when I just finished medical school, roughly. You know, probably just a bit after, maybe. And it reminded me of that first August where you know we talked about it before. You sacrificed that whole week of nights, eight to late every day. And, um, you know, you see your other friends or people in Leeds town or whatever where I was working, going out and partying on a Friday night. And that's the first of my seven days trapped in this hospital working. So you do have, and I probably did about somewhere between six and eight weeks of nights per year. So that's six to eight weeks of a year that I've just given up 
mm-hmm. of 52 already, excluding holidays, etc., which I've just written off for the year. I can't do anything. They're gone. And so there is this degree of sacrifice and of sacrificing your youth. And I suppose the same in medical school. Our exams were always a bit longer. They were always a bit later. The next door neighbours were always partying, but our exams were, you know, two or three weeks' time and there were a multitude of them. Mm. So there is this degree of discipline and about sacrifice that you have to be prepared to do. Whilst I am very much committed to the work, I can't let it pass that you've just compared um, working long hours in a hospital as a 21-year-old to me going to present one of the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards in LA. Very, very different things. I can't hide my I was, jealousy. I was interviewing Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, I really what you were doing hide, was actual hide my work. Jealousy. Oh, you've lived my life dream. That gives you a rough idea how old I am, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, right, so you can get in touch, as Ben did, about anything you like. The doctor and I would love to answer your questions. As I say, it's doctor at nextdoorpod.com. And that's it for this episode of Doctor Next Door. As ever, thank you very much indeed to my regular co host and my next door neighbour, Dr. Neil Srinivasan. Next time, Dr. Neil will once again be taking advantage of my generous hospitality and teaching me slash us more about the wonders of the medical world. Please do rate, review and subscribe from wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you do know a doctor, nurse or medical professional who you think might take something from this, then do recommend us. Now, as always, I urge you all to get out of my house. 